We're going to be in Matthew 25 today. If you want to open your Bibles, if you don't have one, there should be one under the chair in front of you, or you can find it on your mobile app or download a mobile app right now. You have my permission. And uh, the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with it, is broken into Old Testament and New Testament, so open it about halfway, and the very first book in the New Testament is Matthew. And we're in Matthew 25, we're going to be looking at verses 31 to 46 today. And I don't have a whole lot of stuff to say before we dive into the text, but I just want to say that today's passage is not a parable. So often people, even commentators, talk about this as a parable. This is not a parable. This is a, a real um, record of what is going to happen in the end times. And there are elements of a parable. There's a shepherd, and there's sheep, and there's goats, and there's a, a division or a separation that's going to take place. But par parables teach spiritual lessons, but they don't have to be literal. They don't have to be true. And, and this is definitely literal and true. And so keep that in mind as we read together. I'm going to be starting Matthew 25, verse 31. Matthew records, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all of the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. It's interesting that back in Matthew 16, 27, Jesus spoke of his second coming as in the glory of the Father. And now he speaks of his coming in his own glory. When the Son of Man comes in all of his glory, then will he sit upon his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered in his presence. And he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When do we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Tough passage, and I want to draw some unique things out today that I have never heard from this passage and that I think seldom get uh, analyzed and dealt with, because I think it'll be a very good reminder to all of us in order to apply this passage. I, uh, I recently got uh, back in touch with one of my groomsmen. Um, from our wedding that I hadn't really spoken to in probably 25 years. He was a good friend of mine growing up in Santa Barbara, and he was, he was really uh, a, a great friend of another one of my groomsmen, and I, I came to know Blair through Joe. 
and they were both in the band together and musically oriented and, and all the stuff that I didn't do because I was on the sports track playing baseball and football and volleyball in Santa Barbara. But long story short, Blair just asked me recently if I ever read a book called The Language of God by Francis Collins. And I said I hadn't. He said, would you be willing to read it and give me your thoughts on that? Because Francis Collins is this brilliant scientist who is trying to reconcile faith and science. And his point is that they're not incompatible. I said, sure, I'd be happy to and take notes. We can talk about it together. And as I've been reading through the book, I, I really like a lot of what Francis has to say. But it's become very clear that there are points where we disagree. And we disagree because Francis believes in science and the scientific method is absolute truth. And I believe in scripture as absolute truth. And so his, his starting point is trying to reconcile scripture with science. Whereas my starting point is reconciling science with scripture. And science is not an absolute study. There's a lot of things that we don't know yet. And as a Christian... There's a lot of stuff that we don't know yet either, but I trust an omniscient, infinite God and the record that he has left us, which is God-breathed and without error, to guide me in understanding what that is. And so that's kind of the point here. And all of this to say, I, I start by saying this because I believe that the challenge of Bible study and the challenge of every sermon is not to understand passages just within themselves, but to understand them in light of other scripture as well. Because if all scripture is God-breathed, if it's profitable for teaching and correction and training in righteousness, and if it is truly without error, then scripture should, should harmonize. It should be unified. It should agree with each other. We should be able to explain and understand scripture in light of other scriptures and passages as well, not just in isolation. And I believe that that is one of the cases today um, <coughs> that I'd like to explore with you. Because one of the questions that I had of this passage, and I've had for many years, and I would have to say only this week have I, have I really landed upon this perspective and this understanding, is verse 31. It says that when the Son of Man comes, uh, where is it? Helps to have the right. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then will he sit on his glorious throne. And my question, which a lot of you would say, who cares? But <laughs> my question is, is that at the beginning of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, or is it at the end? And a lot of us think, well, what does it really matter? Well, let me read for you Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 to 15, and then I'll explain myself, and we'll fold that into our passage today. The Apostle John gets the revelation from God, and this is what he records in chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years come to an end, what thousand years? The thousand years of the millennium, the, the thousand year reign of Christ with believers on earth as he sets up his, his kingdom. When it comes to an end, Satan will be let out of prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. And he will gather them together for battle. A mighty army as, as numberless as the sand uh, along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But the fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. 
And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they are tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and, the de- and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire as well. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Only this week have I seen, personally, this is my opinion, not something that you have to believe and you can search for yourself, but in my opinion, the great white throne, the judgment, is what's being described in Matthew. Whereas a lot of times people put those as two different judgments. And the reason why... I'm beginning to think that is because if Satan, after the thousand-year period, is going to be released and go out to deceive, who is he going to deceive? If the wicked, the non-believers, have already been judged and banished or held for future punishment, there's nobody left but Christians and believers. 2 Corinthians 5.10 also reminds us that even though many say that, well, the righteous will never stand before the throne and give an account, Not so, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all must appear or stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and each one of us will receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil that we have done in our earthly bodies. At the end of the day, not important, but it's helpful for me as I try and reconcile and understand the timing and and so forth to to put it all in context. One of uh, the commentaries that I regularly go to and, and look to to see... What, what they have to say is the Bible knowledge commentary. And this particular commentary about this passage says, With all wickedness removed, the millennial kingdom will begin on earth with only saved individuals, glorified saints from the Old Testament times, and the church, the bride of Christ, in physical bodies constituting the earthly kingdom in the reign of the King of Kings. But again, I ask, if that's true, then who is Satan going to gather together to deceive at the end of time? And understand, for those of you who are thinking, oh, no, does that mean there's like another, like, second tribulation, crazy time? Notice what Revelation says about that. Satan briefly gathers the nations together to try and deceive them and attack God and the camp of the righteous and of the saints. And God sends fire down from heaven, and it's over like that. It's just like an instant, and it's all over. And then Satan and his demons are banished to hell forever. And we'll talk about more, more about that in a little bit to come. But um, something to reconcile, something to figure out in terms of understanding the context of our passage today. A few other additional notes that I want to make about our passage before I jump in and draw out some essential themes today. But... While the majority of scholars understand the least of these, my brothers, to refer to all who are hungry and distressed and needy, which I myself have really viewed that for years, in the book of Matthew, 
my brothers and little ones, always refers to believers, disciples of Christ. It's not just people in general. And one of the things that Jesus is saying is that throughout all of eternity, and particularly during the tribulation, for any believers that are going through that, how non-believing people treat God's disciples, it will be credited to them as if they had done it to the Lord himself. That's an important point. And Jesus was really saying this back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 48 through 50. He said, who are my brothers? And then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus, and Matthew in particular, is referring to these little ones and brothers as disciples of the Christians. Now, dispensationalists believe that our passage speaks of how Gentiles, non-Jews, treat the Jewish remnant during the tribulation. But the problem that I have with that, and any view that has Christians or believers, be they Jews who come to faith or anybody else, as on earth when Christ comes to set up his kingdom, my question is, why didn't they rise at the second coming with all other believers? Why are they left there? It makes no sense. So for some of you, it's like, who cares? But it's something to figure out. It's something to reconcile. The wonderful truth that God gives us in our passage is that help that is given to his children is equated as help that's given to him. And help that is denied his children is equated as help that's denied him. And somebody was commenting on this and saying, how can it be? And I like their perspective. They said, well, if we really want to bring delight to parents, if we really want to move them to gratitude, the best way to do it is to help their children. Similarly, the best way to delight the heart of God is to help his children. I thought that's really true. Like if you want to score points with Denise and I, treat our daughters well. You know, look out for them. Take care of them and show them kindness or compassion or hospitality. And I'm sure the same is true for you. Uh, Maybe many a person has shown your son or your daughter or your kids love and and, um, appreciation. And that so warms the heart of a parent. And Jesus is saying a similar thing here, that when we do good things, hospitable things to his followers, it's as if we're doing it to him as well. And the last thing I want to say before we really jump in is that many have drawn a theology of salvation by works from our passage. It seems like Jesus is affirming that if you do good things in my name, that's how you earn your salvation. But it's really clear that the salvation of the sheep is still a gracious gift of God. It's not something that's earned by their works, uh, all the things that are listed in verse 35 and verse 36. The good deeds that Jesus is affirming are the fruit, not the root of their salvation. That's important. It's the good things that are done because they believe in God, because God has transformed their lives, not the good things that they do that have earned their salvation. Really important. Well, there's three themes, uh, three themes if you're taking notes today on your outline, and they all begin with the letter M. I thought rather than call this the sheep and the goats, today we're going to call it 3M because there's three M's, and I'm going to give them to you. The first is ministry. The first overarching theme that I see in our passage 
has to do with ministry. One of the interesting things uh, about this is that Jesus highlights giving a hungry person a meal or a thirsty person a drink, welcoming a stranger, cheering the sick, visiting the prisoner. And as somebody pointed out, and I'd never considered this before, these are things that every single one of us can do. They're simple things. It's not, well, if I had had more money, I could have done that. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I, my car broke down and you bought me a Tesla. No. I was homeless and you bought me a home by the beach. No. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was in prison and you visited me. You comforted me. All things that are achievable and possible for us to do. They're not superhuman acts of heroics. The very simple acts of ministry and kindness that all of us are able to do. And really, from our vantage point here on earth, when we do things for others, we never really know whether we're helping a Christian or a non-Christian. And so our motivation shouldn't be just to help Christians. It should be to help anybody who's created in the image of our maker, image of our God. That's everyone. But the question becomes, if ministry is really so simple, and if what God is actually requiring of us is as simple as it sounds, why don't we do it? And why don't we do it with greater frequency and consistency? And I would attest to you, I would, I would say to you, in, in all of my earthly years, the reasons that I've come up with is because ministry seldom happens at a convenient time. The people that come for benevolence help here from our community, they normally come at the very end of the day when you're getting ready to leave, and they know it. They want to kind of force your hand. They, they want to many times be a nuisance, so you just give them money or tangible stuff rather than having them fill out forms and go through a process. They will often come on Sunday morning because they know that that's disruptive. You know, and, and granted, these people knew about their need way earlier in the day and way earlier in the week, but they oftentimes come because they know that many Christians will just give them stuff to get them out. We got church going on right now. We got programs. We got kids running around. Here, take 10 bucks, take 20 bucks, go get a meal, go get gas. And we just kind of hurry them on their way and we don't even deal with them as humans. Ministry seldom happens at a convenient time. And it always involves sacrifice. It involves sacrifice of time, of energy, of our schedule, of our priorities, of time with family. And I think that's one of the reasons why we don't do it. And another point that I was thinking about this week is there are a lot of times that ministry is not rewarding, as, as weird as that sounds. I was at Firehouse Subs the other day, and a homeless person came in and kind of came up to me in line and said, would, would you buy me a meal? I said, sure, because I'm happy to always buy somebody a meal. I never give somebody cash, but I'm always happy to buy a meal. And so this person was looking on the menu and, and somehow gravitated to the most expensive thing on the menu, way more than what I was getting. I'm like, sure, that's fine. Then they wanted chips and a cookie and a large drink and all this stuff with it. And so I bought that and came outside because they had gone back outside and gave them the receipt and said, your name is under, you know, this name, and it's paid for. When they call it, you can just get it. And he goes, would you do that for me? 
And I was thinking, wow, okay. Um, and it never occurred to me that this person probably didn't feel welcome in there, and that's why they wanted me to do it. But for the next 10 minutes, as they wandered around outside, and I tried to track them down with the drink that they wanted and, oh, more ice, and, no, I don't want those chips with these chips, and, oh, can you get the, the chocolate chip cookie with bigger things, you know? And it's like I was really fighting it, like, holy cow, you know, um, little entitlement here, you know? And suddenly helping this person wasn't as rewarding and heartwarming as it was supposed to be. And God reminded me, welcome to ministry. How do you think I feel about you and all of your whining, you know? All the stuff that you have, yeah. But honestly, I never really thought about it before. Everything that Jesus is judging the sheep of the goats by are simple, achievable things. The problem is that it's never convenient. It's always a sacrifice. And, yeah, it's tough. So ministry is the first theme that I see. The second is motives. Ministry, then motives. Back in Matthew 10, 40 to 42, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. It's very similar to what we hear in our passage today. Anyone who receives you receives me. And anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. If you receive a prophet as one who speaks for God, you will be given the same reward as a prophet. And if you receive righteous people because of their righteousness, you will be given a reward, a reward like theirs. And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of my brothers, you will surely be rewarded. Jesus is equating good works in his name that are done to his brothers and his sisters, other believers, those made in his image, as being done to him. The interesting thing that I had never really considered in our passage before either is notice that both the sheep and the goats in our passage do what they do with no awareness beyond the physical act. The righteous are not doing what they're doing thinking, oh, I'm scoring points with God. This is going to secure my salvation. And the goats, if they had been thinking of that, they surely would have done it. The people that they thought, oh, these aren't even worth stopping. These are the least of these. Why should I even bother with them? They're, they're not worth my time. If they had equated helping that person with helping God and scoring points with God, they definitely would have stopped. But Jesus is testing motives. Like, do you do what you do because of what it gets you and what it earns you and what it achieves for you? Or do you do it just because it represents your heart? It represents a heart that's been transformed and changed by my love and by my presence. That's really the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Ministry isn't calculated. Those who helped didn't think they were helping Christ in earning eternal credit. They helped because it reflected their heart. It was a natural, instinctive reaction of a heart that was transformed by God. And on the other hand, the attitude of those who failed to help was, if we had known it was you, we gladly would have helped. But we thought it was only some insignificant person who wasn't worth helping. Jesus is hitting upon our motives. Jesus is interested in a righteousness that comes from the heart. As people respond to his disciples and align themselves with their distress and afflictions, they're aligning themselves with the Messiah who identifies with them. That's what Jesus is saying. 
It was a story of Francois Fenelon. He was the court preacher for King Louis XIV of France in the 17th century. One Sunday when the king and his attendants arrived at the chapel for the regular service, no one else was there but the preacher, Fenelon. King Louis demanded, what does this mean? Fenelon replied, I had published today that you would not be coming to church in order that your majesty might see who serves God in truth and who flatters the king. It becomes evident really quick whether what we're doing is to score points and be seen by other people or whether it reflects our genuine motivation and heart's desire. Augustine once said, it isn't the being seen by other people that's wrong, but doing things for the purpose of being seen by them that is wrong. The problem with the hypocrite is his motivation. He doesn't want to be holy. He wants to seem holy. He's more concerned with his reputation for righteousness than about actually becoming righteous. The praise of men matters to him more than the approval of God. And as we read that, there's something within us that goes, ouch. Because we've all been there. None of us is perfect. None of us has ever done all of the good that we do with purely you know, altruistic, benevolent motives. There's always an angle. There's always an agenda. Except when we're at our best by the grace of the Holy Spirit. T.S. Eliot once said, the last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. I think how many people are out there doing the right thing but with the wrong reason, the wrong motivation, the wrong understanding. Motives play very much into our passage today. The last thing I want to hit upon today, and you're, you're going to go, seriously, really? The last M is mercy. And I actually want to frame and talk about hell in terms of mercy today, which seems unthinkable. Because hell is one of those things that, that really is the hardest thing to reconcile in Scripture. How can a loving God send people eternally to be punished? It just seems incongruous. You know, I can, I can understand for a, a period of time or after a while if they're de destroyed, the, the annihilation view... You know, that this cease to exist, but forever and ever and ever. How is that possible? Science fiction writer Isaac As As uh, Asimov once wrote that he would gladly prefer the tortures of hell over the boredom of heaven. It's similar to a well-known sentiment that we've all heard. I'd rather party with my friends in hell than hang out with boring servants and saints in heaven. And you know, sadly... For many, many Christians, that's their mentality as well. You know, especially younger kids and youth that haven't really read the Bible a whole lot. They're thinking, oh my gosh, it's going to be like a church service that never ends. It's going to be like Pastor Bob is talking and talking. And it's like, oh my goodness. You know, we're going to be floating on clouds and strumming harps and shoot me now. You know. That's our idea of eternity. That's our idea of heaven. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Thank God. From the lips of Pat, you have it. The point is this. 
Most non-Christians greatly underestimate hell. And yet most Christians greatly underestimate the bliss of heaven. And how sad that is. And how much, again, that is a challenge for us to know Scripture better than we do. And to, to, dig, to dig deep so that we, we come up with answers that aren't just given to us by others, but answers that are our own. Many person, uh, many people have wished, as I said, that, that hell was temporary. That um, after a certain period of time, the punishment, the suffering stopped, that maybe people ceased to be. But as I've said many times before in other sermons, I honestly believe that God created all of us, Christian and non-Christian, to live forever. And the issue is whether or not we live that in his presence or not. You, you, you cannot think of hell as a torture chamber that God has designed intentionally to inflict the greatest amount of punishment upon those who don't follow him. As I've said before also, hell is simply the absence of God. It's the opposite, the antithesis of everything that he is. He is light, hell is darkness. He is warmth, hell is, you know, he is fellowship, hell is alienation and separation. Everything that God is, hell is the opposite because it's devoid of his presence. And as we've also discussed many times, many of our friends and many of the, the non-believing world that we encounter say, well, you know, I've been fine here on earth. Things are, you know, I don't mind living like that for all of eternity. But what the average person doesn't realize now is how much God is involved in their daily life. How much of his grace and mercy has extended them every day and they don't even realize it and recognize it. They think that it's their own ingenuity or their own cleverness, their own creativity. None of us truly knows what life looks like with God completely out of the picture. That's a scary, scary thing. Verse 46, the same word for eternal modifies both punishment and life, meaning the same Greek word is used in both places. The punishment of the wicked is as never-ending as the bliss of the righteous. That's what Jesus is describing. It, it's pretty clear-cut. We either live eternally in God's presence or we're separated from his presence. But as much as Scripture speaks of the reality of hell, it also speaks of the mercy of God. And we've talked about this many times as well. The famous verse right after John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Why? For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might live. 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing for any to perish, not meaning to cease to exist, but to be lost or to be punished, but for all to come to repentance. It's not God's will for any to perish, for any to be punished, for any to suffer, but for all to come to repentance. So I want to draw some things out of our passage that maybe you haven't considered before, and a few of these things I hadn't considered before. What our passage teaches us about hell. The first thing that I believe our passage teaches us is found in verse 41. Hell was never designed or created for humans. It was created and designed for Satan and his angels. And it says that very clearly. Even in Revelation where we read, the purpose of hell is to torment Satan and his angels day and night forever and ever. It doesn't say the purpose is to torment humans. 
Yes, it's a place of suffering and punishment, and it's a place none of us want to be, but that's worth noting. And I also, secondly, don't believe that it reflects God's original intention and plan. Now, this is not to say that God in his omniscience, the fact that he knows all things, didn't anticipate and know that there would come a need for help, come a time for the need for help. God is all-knowing. Of course, he wasn't blindsided by this. But I don't believe it reflects his original intention and plan. Verse 34, we read that God's kingdom was prepared for the righteous before the foundation of the world. But when it speaks of hell, the eternal fire, it doesn't say the same thing. Hell was not prepared before the foundation of the world. If anything speaks against determinism, that does. And I don't, how, I don't know how that figures in with the grace and the mercy of God, but that's an interesting point. The question becomes why? Because God's initial primary purpose was for eternal life. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God put cherubim and seraphim around the tree of life because he didn't want them to eat of the tree of life and live forever in that sinful state. It's important to know. God's primary purpose was for eternal life, but the, the evil of the devil and his angels and the unrighteous brought about the preparation of hell for a later secondary purpose of punishment. So it wasn't designed before the foundation of the world, before the earth began. It was brought about as a later secondary purpose of punishment for Satan and his angels and all who choose to follow in their, in their footsteps. Now, there's debate over whether non-Christians, after they die, one day will be reunited with their physical bodies. Joe and I were looking at passages this week on Friday morning men's Bible study, and some of them sort of convincing, some of them not convincing at all. Really doesn't matter, but the, the, the jury is still out as to whether non-Christians will be reunited with their physical bodies. And all of that to say that Will people in hell experience pain the same way that we experience pain on earth? Another speculation. But I'm here to tell you that the agony of hell will not have to do with physical pain. And so when you think of a cruel God who's just inflicting pain forever, the agony of hell is people who finally know the truth. Praise God. Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it'll be too late. And they will go throughout all of eternity knowing I've made a mistake. I'm separated from my maker. I am out of fellowship with my creator forever. And I cannot do anything to be in his presence and to correct that. It's too late. And that will be the agony, my friends. That will be the agony and the despair apart from the separation and the alienation from God. More than any physical pain that we can imagine. And that's what we have to understand about hell. Finally, I believe that Scripture really presents hell as our choice rather than God's. That sounds harsh, but listen to John 3.19. The judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. God gave us this gift of free choice and free will, and he doesn't interfere with that. He did not create us as robots that he wound up to go a predetermined course, but he allows us 
to choose for ourselves. That's why C.S. Lewis once said, it is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it is taken care of, unless it is nipped in the bud. Friends, there is something evil and sinful within every one of us that if left unchecked, will become hell itself within each one of us. I like what N.T. Wright has to say about this. He says, it seems to me that it's possible for human beings to choose to live more and more out of tune with the divine intention, to reflect the image of God less and less, and there's nothing to stop them from finally ceasing to bear that image, and so to be, as it were, beings who were once human but are not now. Those who persistently refuse to follow Jesus will, by their own choice, become less and less like him. That is, less and less truly human. I see nothing in the New Testament to make me reject the possibility that some, perhaps many, of God's human creatures do choose and will choose to dehumanize themselves completely. Nor do I see anything to make me suppose that God, who gave to human creatures the risky gift of freedom and choice, will not honor that choice. Friends, that's exactly what Paul talks about in Romans 1. There comes a point in our sin and our rebellion where God gives us over. And he's done that with many people. God takes his hands off and says, as C.S. Lewis said, you know, there are those who say, thy will be done, and there are those to whom God says, thy will be done, have it your way. And it is a scary place to be in your life when God takes his hands off and says, I'm going to let you have what you want. It's not my will, but I'm done. You're on your own. Scary, scary thing. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, sums it up by saying this. Hell, then, is the trajectory of a soul living self-absorbed, self-centered, a self-centered life going on forever and ever. So hell is the, the trajectory of a soul and a life that's left unchecked by God's mercy and grace that just is allowed to spiral further and further and further away from God. As we close today, I, I want to bring you back to 2 Peter 3.9. I can't get away from that. God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I don't think God says that lightly. God knows that's not going to be true, but that doesn't reflect his heart. And I guess the question that I have is, as we see the end times becoming increasingly a reality in our world, what is our heart? Do we truly care that there are people around us that we interact with every day that are on a path that leads to living eternity separated from God? And do we care enough to do something about it, to say something about it, to risk embarrassment, to risk maybe the loss of friendship, to to lovingly steer them toward God. God doesn't want anyone to to perish or be destroyed, but for all to come to repentance. And the the message of the gospel is, is clear that it's a free gift. It's nothing that we've done to earn it. It's all about what God has already done. That's what separates Christianity from every other religion of the world. Not do, 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 but done. It's been done. Just do we accept it? Do we receive it? Do we personally take it for ourselves? That's our message for ourselves and for the world. Let's pray.